James 3:18, as well as 4, 1 through 12. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says? He yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges his brother or sister speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The word of the Lord. Well, we are continuing our series on the book of James uh, the book of James is all about how to do life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And that makes it one of the most practical books in the whole Bible. Uh, because James, this book asks the question, if you've had um, an encounter with the gospel, if your life has been transformed by an encounter with Jesus Christ, then what should your life actually look like as a result, practically speaking? The book of James shows us. Um, but it's not just what should your life look like that James talks about. He also talks about what should our community look like as a result of the gospel. And this week's passage in particular really gets into this community aspect of uh, gospel transformation. And this is really important for us because I think it's safe to say that probably every single person in this room yearns for community. Everybody here has a deep longing for meaningful connection with other people. I mean, that's probably one of the main reasons you're here right now. And if you don't have that kind of meaningful connection with other people, the result in your life can actually be pretty devastating. Um, for instance, I read an article a few years ago that talked about a woman named Yvette Vickers. Yvette Vickers was a B-movie star back in the 1950s, and she was actually pretty popular at the time. But as she got older and as the years went by, um, she had fewer and fewer meaningful relationships in her life. She, there was no deep connection 
to other people in community, so much so that when she died a few years ago in Los Angeles, her body went undiscovered for close to a year until finally one of her neighbors noticed the cobwebs and the yellowing letters in her mailbox. And one of the scariest and eeriest and really most tragic things about her death was when they went inside to the room where they found her mummified body, the glow of the computer was still filling the room. Her only meaningful connections with other people in the months before she died had been with people online. In fact, they went through her phone records and and they found out that in the months before she died, the only people that she had talked to on the phone were not her family, not her friends. They were distant fans who had found her online. Friends, you long for community. You need deep connection with other human people. You long to be known. You long to be needed. And if you don't have that, the results in your life are devastating. So, so here's the thing. We all long for community. But here's the other thing. You realize that when you really do get into community with people, oftentimes it's really, really difficult, isn't it? I mean, just look at our country. James is saying that the church should be different. James is saying that the church should be the one place in the world that when the world looks at the church, it should see God because what it sees is a community of people that are actually loving each other. But can we just be honest? So often the church is almost the exact opposite of that. So often the church can be one of the most messed up, most dysfunctional, most uh, broken places in, um, in community. The church can be full of, of fighting and squabbling and bickering and backfighting and, and backstabbing. And James is saying that's happening in the church because that's what this passage is all about. He's talking about fights and quarrels in the church. So here's the question. If we all yearn for community, and we do, And yet, if being in um, loving, deep community with other people is so difficult, and it is, then here's the question. How do we actually find the kind of deep, loving, intimate community that we're all longing for? This passage shows us, in particular, by showing us three things about community. We're going to see the centrality of community, the the, um, the breakdown of community, and lastly, the restoration of community, okay? There's the centrality of community, the breakdown of community, and lastly, the restoration of community. And the first thing James shows us in this passage is the centrality of community. Um, this week's passage, we began it with the last verse of chapter 3, in which James says, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace, by those who make peace. Now, let's just notice a couple of things about that verse. First, the word righteousness. He talks about this harvest of righteousness. In the Bible, righteousness is an incredibly important word. It's also a very relational word. Righteousness describes a situation in which all of your relationships are right. So that means your relationship with God is right, It also means that as a result, your relationship with yourself is right, your relationship with others is right, your relationship with the world around you is right. Everything in your life is as it's supposed to be, righteousness. But but notice what he says about righteousness. He says that our lives, there's supposed to be a harvest of righteousness that's actually produced in our lives. But, But how does that get produced? If you look at the verse, what's the metaphor? Righteousness is sown... He says there's a ground, there's a soil 
out of which the righteousness is produced. What is the soil? What is the ground out of which this harvest of righteousness comes? He says it's peace. Now, peace is another incredibly important word in the Bible. And the interesting thing, when the Bible uses the word peace, it it never is simply talking about the mere absence of conflict. When the Bible uses the word peace, it's never just about the absence of conflict. It's always about the presence of wholeness the presence of completion and flourishing. So whenever I think about this, I always think about the end of World War I uh, because I've been fascinated by those pictures of Western Europe that even 100 years later, you can still see the trenches that were tremendously deep and long. Uh, 100 years later, you can still see the trenches out of which they fought that war. But at the end of World War I, Western Europe was like Swiss cheese, the countryside. Because even when the soldiers went home, even when the bombs stopped dropping, even when they put their machine guns down, the country was not experiencing peace, not in the biblical sense of the word. Because even though there was an absence of conflict, there were still huge bomb holes in the ground. Those trenches were deep and long. The the villages of of Western Europe were um, completely demolished by artillery. Western Europe was like Swiss cheese. It was full of holes. It was completely torn up. In that sense, even though there was an absence of conflict, it was not experiencing peace, at least not in the biblical sense of the word peace, because peace does not just mean the absence of conflict. It means the presence of wholeness and completion and flourishing and abundance and righteousness. That means James is saying that it is impossible for you, for any of us, to really experience peace in our lives if we're not a part of a community of peace. That, that you can never experience peace and wholeness all by yourself because if even one tiny part of the whole is broken, that means that, that the whole thing is broken. That means that you can never experience peace all by yourself. You can never experience wholeness all by yourself. The only way for you to experience peace and wholeness as an individual is if you are part of a community that is experiencing peace and wholeness. Now, here's why this is so important for us. You know, this is very difficult for those of us who've grown up in Western culture because we live in what is probably the most individualistic culture that the world has ever seen. And that's, listen, that's not entirely a bad thing. Um, you know, our modern emphasis, we put more emphasis on the individual worth and dignity of every single human being than probably any other culture that's ever existed in the world. And that's a good thing. Actually, that's a Christian thing. That is the, the result or one of the results of Christianity's impact on our world over the last 2,000 years. So, for instance, there's a very or was a very famous postmodern philosopher named Jacques Derrida, Um, Definitely not a Christian, but he made a very interesting statement one time in which he said this. He said, the cornerstone of international law is the sacredness of man as your neighbor made by God. In that sense, he says, the concept of crime against humanity is a Christian concept. And I think, postmodern atheist philosopher Jacques Derrida says, I think there would be no such thing in the law today without the Christian heritage. That is a powerful statement from somebody who really doesn't have a dog in the fight. Our modern emphasis on on the individual and on human rights is, is one of the direct results of Christianity's impact 
on our world right now. That emphasis on the individual is a good thing, and it is a Christian thing. But in our culture, what's happened is the individual has been so exalted and so enthroned that we are now captive to this idea that says that, that your individual life is the result of your own individual choices and decisions. So much so, for instance, uh, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy is retiring. It's very big news right now. Anthony Kennedy is the one who is responsible for those incredibly famous words in that very famous 1992 court decision, Supreme Court decision, in which he said, and I quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. You, that is the mantra of our culture, is it not? That we all have the right, that the, the, the definition of liberty is having the right to define your own life, to define yourself. The problem is it's not true. It doesn't work like that. We, every single one of us is the product of community. Sociologists will tell you that. For instance, your beliefs by and large, are the product of community. Uh, there's a field called the sociology of knowledge, um, and the concept is pretty simple. The sociology of knowledge says that we all have a tendency to believe or find plausible the beliefs of people that we like and admire, or that we have a tendency to believe the things that are believed by people that we want to like and admire us. So a lot of us might say, wait, wait, no, that's not me. I'm an autonomous individual. I'm, I'm objective. I'm always rational. I only believe things that are consistent with science and logic and reason. And the sociology of knowledge would say, oh, contraire. You see, now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that it's impossible to escape the beliefs of your community. Of course, that can happen. When I became a Christian, I was 30 years old, there was really nobody in my community that were Christians, including especially my family. And, and it does happen. Um, but what has to happen usually is something has to happen to get you to start thinking in a different way. But it isn't uh, impossible to escape the beliefs of your community. But your beliefs, by and large, until that something happens, a lot of times are the product of community. But it's not just our beliefs. Your whole life is the product of community. So, for instance, there are thousands of kids, 8 years old, 10 years old, here in St. Louis, in the city, in our public school system, that right now their lives are on a fast track to nowhere, basically. Um, a lot of them are probably going to end up in prison. Why is that? The conservative analysis says that, well, it's because of family breakdown. The liberal analysis says, well, it's because of systemic institutionalized racism. There are a growing number of thinkers that would say it's probably a combination of both factors and um, that with the institutional systemic factors probably playing a little bit greater of a role. But here's the thing. Um, I've heard Tim Keller, the great pastor and um, writer in New York City, he's pointed this out a number of times. Nobody says it's the kid's fault. Nobody says that it's the fault of the child. That child is a product of community. Friends, every single one of us is a product of a community. Your beliefs, your life, your character, the product of your life is the product of communities that have shaped you. Do you know what community has shaped you? Where are your most significant relationships? Where is your primary network? Where are your deepest interactions in life? That community is shaping you. And here's why this is so important for us here right now. If you want to experience the true, deep, 
real, lasting, and supernatural transformation that is available to you in Jesus, you can't do that without being part of a Christian community. That means that you have to show up to hear church on Sunday mornings, but you also have to be part of deep community with other Christians throughout the week. If you only do one or the other of those things, it makes it really easy to just kind of hide out, get a little taste, maybe get a little inspiration, but you're not really being transformed because you're not allowing yourself to become vulnerable and transformed by being part of a deep Christian community. And that actually leads to our next point. We've just seen the centrality of community. You are the product of a community. But secondly, we need to talk about the brokenness or the breakdown of community. Because if we all need community, and we do, then the next question is, why is there community breakdown? James really drills down deep into this, and I want to invite you to go along with me as we look at it. If you look at verses 1 and 2, James asks, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Wouldn't you like to know? He says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So, According to James, the reason we have community breakdown is because of frustrated passions or unfulfilled desires. It's because we covet and cannot obtain. Now, when we hear language like that, passions, desires, especially that word coveting, it's a good old King James word. When we hear language like that with our modern ears, it's really hard for us to hear that language and not think that James and the rest of the Bible is really negative about physical material things like food, sex, and drink. That is not what he's saying. And by the way, we know that's not what he's saying because just back in chapter 2, we looked at it a few weeks ago, James is talking about how Christian community should be deeply involved in um, doing justice and mercy for poor people. But one of the primary ways, he says, that you do justice and mercy is by caring for the physical, material needs of other people. So whatever he's talking about here, he can't be saying that physical, material things like food, sex, and drink are bad things. So what is he talking about? He doesn't use the word, but James is talking about idolatry. He's talking about idolatry. He's saying that the basic problem in your life, and therefore the basic problem in all of our communities, is something called idolatry. What is that? Um, I want you to, um, to go with me into verse 2. I'm going to try and explain this as simply as I can. In verse 2, James says, you desire and you do not have. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now that word desire, that is one of the most important and significant words in the whole Bible. The Greek word is epithemia, and it's a word that doesn't just mean normal-sized desire. It's a word that means excessive desire or inordinate desire. It means over-desire. It's like desire and overdrive, okay? That's what this word means. Therefore, James is not saying that the things we desire are bad, And by the way, we know that's true because in verse 3, look at what he says. You desire and do not have. No, I'm sorry. Verse 3, he says, you ask and do not receive uh, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he's not saying that the problem is that the things you're asking for are bad. Did you notice that? He says the problem is that you ask wrongly. He's saying that the problem is that your motivations are all messed up. In other words, the problem is not that you have a normal-sized desire 
for bad things. The problem is that we have an oversized desire for really, really good things. And that is what idolatry is. Idolatry is whenever we take really, really good things. And by the way, we never make idols out of average things. We never make idols out of mediocre things. We only ever do this with really good things. Idolatry is when you take really good things and and you make them more foundational to your ultimate happiness, well-being, and security than God is. That's why it's idolatry, because idolatry is taking good things and turning them into ultimate things. It's taking good things and putting them in the place of God. Now, we need to go deeper than that, because if we just stopped there, it would be easy to say, ah, okay, I get it. So idolatry is when I love like romance or marriage or relationships too much, or when I love money or my career or work too much, or if I love my family or my kids too much, or if I love working out or food or any or my accomplishments or any of these things too much. And that's true. All of those things, we make idols out of those things, but that's not going deep enough because those things are what we would call surface idols. They live on the top of our existence. Those are surface idols, and there are literally dozens, maybe even hundreds of things that we can uh, make idols out of like that. There's There's a whole melange or assortment of things in our lives that we can turn into surface idols, but then there are a very small handful of things that that some theologians call deep idols or heart idols. Things like approval, power, comfort, control, maybe one or two others, but those are the main ones. Very small handful of things that are called deep idols. Now, here's the way this works. It's very possible for several people to share the same surface idol but have different deep idols going on underneath. So for instance, um, take the surface idol of sex, okay? Uh, It's possible that you could have one person that uses the surface idol of sex in order to get their deeper heart idol of power because they want to have control over other people. They want to dominate people. They want to influence people. Or you could have somebody else, same surface idol. They could be using that surface idol of sex because they want to be able to get their deeper heart idol of comfort or pleasure. They want to have a certain pleasurable experience. Or you could have that another person, same surface idol of sex, and they're using it in order to get their deeper heart idol of approval. They want affirmation. They want that intimacy that comes along with it. Do you see how this works? There could be dozens of surface idols, but there's only a very small handful of the deep idols, and those deep idols are the drive shaft of our life. Every single one of us has them. Do you know what one is yours? Here's the question. How do you know which deep idol is your deep idol? One easy way to find out is to ask the question, what gives my life ultimate meaning? So for instance, if you say, my life only has meaning if, um, if I'm winning, if I'm dominating, if I'm crushing it, if I'm having influence over other people, that's evidence of a power idolatry. Or if you say, my life only has meaning if um, certain people like me and respect me, if, if I'm looking good in the world, that's evidence of an approval idolatry. Or if you say, my life only has meaning if I'm having certain kinds of pleasurable experiences, or if I'm living a certain quality of life or standard of living, that's evidence of a comfort idolatry. Or if you say, my life only has meaning if I'm getting mastery over my life in this area or mastery over my life in that area, that's evidence of a control idolatry. Do you see how this works? Lots of different surface idols, only a small handful of deep idols. 
approval, power, comfort, control. Which one is yours? Do you know? Usually, there's just one of them that kind of tends to dominate in our lives. Do you see how this works, though? You see, uh, and again, understand that these are not bad things. Approval and comfort, comfort and power and control, those aren't bad things. The problem is when you take your need for approval or power or comfort and control and, and you're looking for the fulfillment of that need in something or someone other than God, guess what happens when some person fails you in that regard or when some person gets in your way between you and that thing you're seeking to fulfill the deepest needs of your heart? What happens? Community breakdown. If you put expectations on anyone or anything to fulfill the deepest needs of your heart, then two things are going to happen. First, your expectations are going to crush that person or that thing because no created thing has the power to fulfill the, truly fulfill the deepest needs of your heart. Number two, that person or thing's failure to live up to your expectations is going to crush you. And the result of all of that is community breakdown, fights and quarrels. Bitterness and anger, resentment and unforgiveness, community breakdown. Friends, the biblical picture, picture of, of sin is idolatry. It's, idolatry is whenever you take something or someone and, and you make that person or that thing more foundational to your ultimate well-being, happiness, and security than God is. And when you do that, the result is community breakdown. And by the way, you notice this is a far more sophisticated picture of evil than you'll find anywhere else. Because in this picture of evil, evil is not the opposite of good. Evil is the distortion of good. It's the corruption and the deprivation of good. And that means, by the way, that idolatry explains not only why people do what we would call bad things. Idolatry also explains why many of us do what the world would call very good things. Because it means that it's, it's very possible not just to do what the world calls bad things, but to do even the good things that you do because you're seeking approval or power or comfort and control. So you could give your life to some noble cause or you could sacrifice your life for other people and, and the world would look at you and say, what a good person, what an amazing person. And the whole time you are just as self-centered and self-serving as somebody who's breaking all of the rules. Because it's really still just about you and your deep heart idols. Which means that it's really ultimately about you and God, or rather your rejection of God. Because did you notice in verse 4, James is talking to the Christians here, and he's saying, you adulterous people. It's kind of harsh, don't you think? Especially if you've been with us and you've seen over and over throughout the letter, when James is talking to his Christian friends, he's always calling them his brothers and sisters my beloved brothers and sisters. And now he's like, you adulterers. What is up with that? James, throughout this letter, keeps tapping into the main storyline of the Bible. And he's doing the same thing right here because one of the main things the Bible says over and over again is that God doesn't just love you like a shepherd loves sheep, although he does. And not even that God doesn't just love you like a father loves his children, although he does. The Bible says over and over again that God loves his people like a bridegroom loves his bride. And that he, by the way, when he talks in verse 5, James says that God yearns jealously for us. 
That's what this is talking about. God is like a bridegroom that loves you like, like a bridegroom loves his bride. That's the power. That's the enormity of his love for you. So much so that, that God could actually be described as being jealous. Now, when we hear that word, we hear it as a bad thing because we're thinking of human jealousy. But human jealousy is the distortion of the good jealousy that God has. When we talk about God's jealousy, that's a pure jealousy. That's a holy jealousy. That's a jealousy that looks at you and wants only your well-being, your happiness, your fulfillment, your healing, your restoration. God wants a renewed relationship with you. He loves you like a bridegroom loves a bride. And when we understand that, we realize we can put it all together and come back to, here's what it all comes down to. What causes community breakdown? It's relational rejection of God. James calls it spiritual adultery. That's, that is another biblical way of referring to idolatry. I mean, the basic message of this passage really is pretty simple because it all comes down to this. We cannot address the social distortions of our world unless we address the spiritual distortions of our lives. We will never be able to address, really, truly, and fully address the social distortions of our world until and unless we begin to address the spiritual distortions of our lives. Politics won't do it. Better education, better technology, better medicine, better systems will not ultimately, truly, and finally address the deepest social distortions of our world because none of those things can get at the spiritual distortions of our lives. And that leads to our last point. We've talked about the centrality of community, and we've just seen the breakdown of community. But lastly, where do we find the restoration of community? Because here's where we're at right now. You know, um, one way of describing community breakdown is simply this. The, the, the basic reason for community breakdown is everybody says, me first. That's the basic reason. Now, if I had just said that at the beginning, none of you would have listened to me. Because you would have all said, A, it's too simple, and B, I don't do that. It doesn't apply to me. But now that we've kind of explored what idolatry is, and we've realized it's possible to be obeying all the rules, being what the world would call a really good person, and still be mired in self-centeredness and self-absorption. When we realize that, we realize that it is truly possible to say that the basic problem in every single community is that everybody, you and me, says, me first. Which means that that the solution, the restoration, would be a community in which everybody says, you first. Now, you realize that is the exact opposite of the way the world would say that we're supposed to live. Because that is completely upside down. And James is saying, you got it. That's the point. The gospel is an upside down gospel. What do I mean? In verse 6, you notice James gives us the principle, the upside-down principle of the gospel. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He restates the principle in a different way in verse 10 when he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Friends, that's the upside-down principle of the gospel. Jesus said stuff like this all the time. He said things like, whoever exalts themselves will be humbled but whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. It's upside down. The way up is the way down. He said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He said, uh, whoever seeks to find their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find their life forever. It's the upside down principle of the gospel. What does it mean? It's all based on the principle of substitution. You first. 
your life, my life for yours, my interests for yours, my well-being for yours, you first. It's all based on the principle of substitution. Now, if we were really to live like that, that would feel like a death, wouldn't it? It kind of would be, but it's a good death because it would be a death to the, to the part of you that really needs to die in order that, that the you that you were created to be could really begin to come alive. That's the kind of death this is. Because right in between those statements that James gives us in verses 6 and 10, those, the, the principle of the upside-down gospel, those are like two bookends there. And in between those two bookends, James gives us verses 7 through 10. It's really like a series of instructions that James gives us on how to go about embracing this upside-down principle of the gospel, the upside-down principle of substitution. What does he say? He says, submit to God. When you submit to God, what are you doing? You're saying, God, you first. He says, resist the devil. What's that? When you resist the devil, you're basically renouncing the way of life that says, me first. He talks about mourning and weeping. That's repenting for your tendency to say, me first. Or the laughter and the joy that gets turned into mourning and gloom. That, Friends, that is a, a selfish, self-centered laughter and joy that, that always says me first and that will never lead to true and lasting joy. He's saying that the only way to true and lasting joy is through death to that part of yourself that always wants to say me first. And when you begin to do that, you begin to be able to turn to God and say, God, you first. And when you are able to say that to God, now you're able to turn around to all the other people in your life and begin to say the same thing to them. You first. You become a vessel of peace and righteousness to the world around you. You become part of a community of grace and peace. Now, um, one of my favorite examples of this comes from uh, a writer. One of my favorite writers is named Thomas Howard. Uh, he's not extremely well-known, but his books have had a tremendous impact on me. Um, actually, they're like hidden jewels. He is such a good writer. One of the things Thomas Howard talks about over and over again in his books is how all the seemingly ordinary and meaningless little events that fill our lives from day to day, how all of those things are really full of eternal consequences. And how um, in one of his books, he talks about he was spending a lot of time studying um, in a library, working on a project, and that, that every day his life just seemed to be filled with drudgery and all kinds of meaningless little tasks, and he was wondering where it was all going. But, but he realized that, that the things that were happening in that library and the things that he was doing that seemed so meaningless in the uh, day-to-day events that filled his life really were filled with eternal significance. And here's how he puts it. He says, What I do at 11.25 a.m. on this Wednesday morning here in the library at 42nd Street and 5th Avenue is helping me on toward becoming either a monster or a saint. He says, all of my attitudes and actions find their native air in either hell or heaven. If I cut into a ticket line, muscling others out of the way so I can be sure of getting a ticket, that is hell, for it says, me first. If I throw down my gum wrapper on the sidewalk, that is hell. For it says, I do not care about the rest of you. It's convenient for me, and that is all that matters. If, however, I give way to somebody, or if I pick up a gum wrapper, that is heaven. For it says here, somebody has been messing things up. Let me just put it to rights. On this view, he says, the smallest courtesy, the the most insignificant, seemingly meaningless little courtesy... Letting somebody go in front of you, 
picking up a gum wrapper off the street. He says, on this view, the smallest courtesy is a tiny picture or case in point of the mightiest drama of all, the cross. For in both of them, the same principle is at work. My life lay down for yours. Exchange, substitution, you first. See what he's saying. Friends, how are we going to actually live like this? How are we going to be people that are able to say to everybody around us, you first? How are we going to be people that are able to actually do the things that are talked about in verses 7 through 10, submitting to God, resisting the devil, um, repenting and turning our, our laughter and joy into mourning and, and, and weeping? How are we going to be able to do all of that? Thomas Howard says that the only way that we will be able to do that is if we see that Jesus Christ has actually done all of it for us, substitution. That the only way it'll happen is if you see that Jesus Christ really is the ultimate bridegroom who loves you like a bride and that he yearns for you so jealously that he yearns to see your ultimate restoration and healing and well-being, that he yearns for a renewed relationship with you. That's why James says right after he talks about God being so jealous for you that he talks about grace. Why does grace come right after God being jealous? That you realize what he's talking about now. It's not grace for breaking the rules. It's grace for breaking the relationship. That God is a lover whom he's after you, which means that everything we've just seen, that it is possibly somebody who's, who's obeying all the rules, who's living what the world would call a really, really good life. And all the time, your life is still just as filled with as much self-centeredness and self-absorption as people who are breaking all of the rules. The grace is not for breaking the rules. The grace is for breaking the relationship. How are you going to be somebody who's going to be able to heal the brokenness in your life? To, instead of saying me first, to start saying you first. You will never address the social distortions of the world until and unless we begin to address the spiritual distortions of our life. How does that happen? Only by seeing that on the cross, Jesus Christ addressed all of it. That on the cross, Jesus Christ said to you, and he said to me, you first. My life for yours. My well-being for yours. My interests for yours. Literally, my blood for yours. The only way we can become people who do verses 7 through 10 is when we see that Jesus Christ already did all of it for us on the cross. On the cross, Jesus submitted to God. On the cross, Jesus resisted the devil. On the cross, Jesus drew near to God, but instead of getting God, he got nothing but cosmic loneliness and forsakenness so that God would draw near to you. On the cross, the divine laughter was turned to weeping and, and the heavenly joy was turned to the gloom of deepest darkness because on the cross, Jesus Christ, the eternal creator of the universe, who is all power and all glory, the ultimate exalted one, was humbled. He was laid low so that you could be exalted, so that you could be lifted up. Friends, you can live according to the upside-down principle of the gospel when you see that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of that principle. You can begin to say, God, you first, and therefore begin to turn around to all the other people in your life and say, you first too, to them, when you see that Jesus Christ on the cross said, you first to you. And the more you see him doing that for you, the more you hear him saying that to you, the more that changes your heart and penetrates your life and transforms your life and makes you somebody who's able to turn around to all the other people in the world and say, you first, to them too. It's the restoration of community. Let's pray.